You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Pushkin. All right, y'all. So it's 2023, and we should probably finally act like it is on this show. Obviously, one of the most ubiquitous ways to make it from the bottom these days is to become an influencer. Freddie Wong, my guest on today's show, is an early version of that, a YouTuber. He started his channel, Freddie W, in 06, back when YouTube was still a fledgling video sharing website. That YouTube channel eventually became a real production company, Rocket Jump. Today, Rocket Jump has over 1.6 billion views on YouTube and 9 million subscribers. His YouTube journey, sparked by an early love of film, led to a production deal with Lionsgate to create a Hulu show a handful of years ago. Since then, he stopped regularly uploading videos online, has dabbled in podcasting, and is generally just plotting what his next move's gonna be. On today's episode, we check in with one of the original stars of YouTube and explore the ups and downs of internet fame and creation. This is Started From The Bottom. Hard-earned success stories from people like us. Freddie Wong, man, thanks for doing this. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me on, man. So I want to I want to get into all things YouTube and and filmmaking. I want to talk filmmaking, but um, I'm just curious where there's not like a ton of info about your early life out and about in public. <laughs> what <laughs> where did your love of storytelling developed uh probably when i spent that stint in prison no 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 um <laughs> no I, I, honestly you know what it was was growing up there were two blockbuster videos there was like the close one and then the bigger nicer one 
my dad loves movies, loves American movies. And he would show us like just so much stuff. So like pretty much every weekend we'd be at the Blockbuster just renting movies. So like Friday we'd see something, Saturday night we'd see something, Sunday afternoon I would have, you know, a third movie sometimes. Like it was just a lot of time in video stores, honestly. And also my dad who like just has such a like I remember <laughs> I remember when I was like I must have been like eleven or twelve, he was like, yo, you have to see this guy, Dustin Hoffman. He's one of the greatest American actors. And so he rented right. The Graduate. I'm like, I kind of think I, okay, I don't quite get what's going on with him and this, like, mom. But, like, I, it seems kind of, you know, definitely didn't quite get it. I still, like, I still remember watching the ending and feeling a certain way. Be like, what an interesting ending. And then, like, the next week yeah. he was like, you yeah. think that was crazy? Here's his next movie. And then he rented Midnight Cowboy. Wow. <laughs> which like which is like, you know, right? Like a very famous, like almost X-ray, right? Or I think at the time even X-ray. Yeah. I remember being like as a kid, being yeah. like, I'm too young for this. But that was the but that wow. was the approach. So your dad was would you say outside of movies, your dad was conservative in his, his approach to raising they you? Were, or was he honestly, always pretty... both of my parents, like, you know, I get this a lot because I think a lot of people have the shared experience in terms of the Asian American, like typical Asian American experience, right? The reason why there's a lot of similarity on it is because, at least speaking to East Asian, specifically Chinese immigrants, You're yeah, Chinese, so I'm full yeah. Chinese. So you kind of have two, essentially, historically, you kind of have like these waves of of immigration and migration, right? If you're in California and you're like Japanese or Chinese, like there's a chance that your family goes back, like back to like railroad times, right? But the Pacific Northwest, a lot of the Asian population there, in, in my case, right, escaping from the Cultural Revolution in China. You have a lot of Southeast Asians post-Vietnam War, right? And so, like, there's a reason why when you think about, like, the typical East Asian experience, a lot of them, you know, like, it's because it's, like, it's fresh immigrant families hitting this sort of specific generation. So it, there's a lot of commonalities there. Like, a lot of the sort of touchstones were the same. Take school seriously, right? Like, but I yeah. think I do acknowledge that it was different for me because I think my, my parents just had a different approach to it. I, you know, at least for myself and my brother, we had a lot more freedom. Because, you know, like sophomore year in high school, like, I wanted to make a movie with a friend of mine. And they were like, as long as your grades are fine, do whatever you want, right? Like, that was the sort of feeling on that. I think part of it also is because my mom, she was a professional dancer in in China. And so has this kind of artistic mm. bend and has this sort of appreciation for the stuff that isn't going to make you six figures all the time you know like so i think that like that combination kind of output my brother and i <laughs> <laughs> so your dad puts you on to movie making or to, to your love of film and then you yeah. were lucky enough to live near a blockbuster i mean it's when i when i think about this i think about luck a lot and yeah. i think that there's a lot of things that fall in place here right so consider that I'm lucky enough to have be alive in an era when you have blockbuster video and you have video rental and you have DVDs and VHS tapes and you have the access to a library, right? Huge. And especially in the pre-broadband internet days, that's a big deal, right? On top of that, we have the iMac that came out, the first real kind of accessible consumer computer that let you take high eight or digital eight or mini DV footage and like edit it. 
because I remember like taking vacation videos and kind of messing with them in, in like, you know, on the computer at home, being able to do that already. Like, that's and, like, which was, like a handheld camera, like JVC yeah, thing. Yeah, like, whatever. like, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a little Sony thing. Got like, yeah. It was that era of camera where they were like, yo, we got night vision mode. Yeah. You hit the button and go night vision yeah. mode. Like, th- they stopped that. Yeah. Like, no, no cameras come with night vision yeah. mode. Anymore. But that was a moment where it was like, yeah. yo, this camera zooms 300 one of the most baller things ever. It was so cool. And you're like, how does this work? Like, I remember growing up and like doing like making little special effects videos with my brother. Like, we would take these pool cues and like do those choreographed sword fights. And then I would go back into the computer and like put lightsaber effects on it because, you know, that's the pinnacle of of filmmaking at the time was doing cool Star Wars lightsaber stuff. Yeah. There's a certain amount of luck involved in we doing what you do. And I mean, you you happen, you're growing up in the heyday of, and in a early 90s would be another high water mark for movie making, you know? And you're being able to rent yes. movies in a, at a Be time able to rent movies. And also, like, again, right? Like, you got to remember that that early 90s coincides with this indie movie revolution, yeah. right? You're talking about guys like Darren Aronofsky coming out. You're talking about Quentin Tarantino. And then people being like, ooh, indie film. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there was a demand for it because people were building so many screens. Yeah. There were so many flexes. flexes they just need yeah. to fill fill them up with screens. So you had companies that were willing to take a shot on like the Sofia Coppola's of the world or the people who were like, hey, they just had a Sundance film and that's it. Yeah. So the, the the dominant mythology growing up for a filmmaker was like, oh, you got to make an indie and yeah. go to a festival and do all that stuff, which I think has you know changed quite a bit well, in the years since. Do you think growing up, formative years being spent in that indie filmmaking boom, loving cinema, did that make you feel like you could be a filmmaker? 100% yes. 100% yes. It's like, oh, you can tell these stories and you can do it cheap as long as you do it cheap. And, long, you know what I mean? Like, it was a total, it's just a totally different yeah. context. So now, so then, that, you know, in that hunt, in that search for trying to find ways to make movies any way we could, we got to, onto online. Another fortuitous development, right? That you could put things online and people could see it and you could potentially generate an audience from it. That was just starting when I was in college. People were like, ooh, the idea of like a popular YouTuber meaning anything was completely foreign to everybody. Even in film school, I remember after I graduated, I was like, oh, hey, I'm going to do doing this YouTube channel. And everyone's response from the film school side was always just like, what, why? Like, what is, what's the point, you know? Like even that, even just the idea of like, making a video, putting it somewhere, getting someone to even find it. Yeah, sometimes you didn't want the video to go viral because you had to pay for it because your bandwidth costs would spike up that that week because mm-hmm. all of a sudden people are sharing it on emails and now I got to pay a thousand bucks at the end of the month because so many people were watching wow. it. So you mentioned you went to film school. You, I mean, you were born, yes. born and raised in Seattle and Washington. Yes, correct, correct. Come down to USC for film school. Yes. You're 20 in 2005, which I would say is probably the year that YouTube really plants itself in the mainstream consciousness, yeah. you know? Yeah, But yeah. You, you have Hollywood dreams. I mean, you have dreams to, to break into Hollywood to some extent. You moved down. Now you're in film school at yeah, USC yeah, yeah. where, you know, George Lucas went and, you know, like everyone went, right? And it's like you at some point decide to go to make stuff for YouTube rather than try to necessarily break into film the more traditional route. So for a little bit, we were doing that. We were doing direct-to-DVD movies. I was working on direct-to-DVD movies. And like in film school, I met this guy named Brandon Lotch, who was my partner for uh, basically all the YouTube era. And we were watching YouTube and we were seeing these guys like build audiences. And we had no idea what it really meant. But I do very distinctly remember being like, you know, like Kevin Smith can make movies, whatever. He can kind of do whatever he wants because he's got this group of audience who likes his movies and they like him as a person to who makes movies. So he kind of has this weird built in audience and like, 
I remember at the time being like, I feel like if you could build up an audience first, maybe you get more freedom later. And that was like literally the depth of the thinking. So Brandon and I were like, well, let's do a YouTube channel. Let's try stuff. Let's try making stuff. In college, we were making like little videos and we were seeing some of them pop off. Like one of my early videos was this Guitar Hero video where it's just me playing Guitar Hero in a very ridiculous way. But like that popped off. And it was one of those weird formative moments where we were watching it and we're like, yo, it's going to get a million views. And they're like, wow, that's crazy. And then it hit a million views and it kept going. And we're like, oh, it doesn't just stop. There's, yeah. It just keeps going. Yeah. Like this, it isn't like it hits a million and then no one ever sees it again. Like these keep going for a while. So like we got into this feeling of like, oh, it's so cool to try and like make something and try and have it be something that people react to and respond to emotionally and maybe they want to share it. Trying to just pump those numbers as opposed to I think a lot of times, right, when you think about artists, like they, they close themselves off and they do their great yeah, works and yeah. then they present it to the adoring public. Whereas in this case, it was more about for us, like trying to populist approach of like, well, let's see what, what do people so want to see. it kind of did change your aim. It kind of did change your dream in a sense. To an extent, because I think fundamentally anybody who gets into film – especially coming at it from like a popular film standpoint, i.e. you didn't grow up watching like the experimental films of like a guy like Stan Brakhage or something. And you got into movies because you saw Jurassic Park and you wanted to, (laughs) like there is a certain, and that's why to me film is such a fascinating artistic medium. There's a certain acknowledgement of commerciality with film. There's a certain acknowledgement that this stuff costs money to make and that people need to pay money to see it in, in order to justify the cost. And how do you get people to see it? You need to be populist to some extent, right? And it's, it's it's really interesting because that's like this inconsistency at the core of this art form because it's not pure art, but it's also not pure populist mass drivel either. It finds this balance in between. Mm-hmm. And film, I think, has always had that tension inside of it. So when you go back to 20-year-old you who's starting to upload stuff to YouTube, yeah, what at that point, like if you could have been like, in 20 years, my dream film is to make X. Like, what would you have compared it to? Would it have been Jurassic Park? I mean, like for me, it was the two things that I. It was the two things that I loved growing up, which was I love comedy, I love action, and to me, action comedy is one of the hardest genres that to do well. Because I also I grew up with like action movies, like The Matrix, and I, I remember a formative experience watching The Matrix in theaters was like when Neo starts blocking Agent Smith at the end with one hand. He yeah. turns and he goes with one hand. I remember standing up in the theater. I stood up and my parents were like, what are you doing? Like, sit down. I'm like, no. Like, what I'm seeing here is so big and so important to me that, like, I can't remain seated anymore. I have to, like, fuck. And, uh, and, like, I remember being like, what? I can't. That, what? I didn't know what to do with myself for that. So, like, stuff like The Matrix was high up there. Like, you know, I think everybody, after they saw that movie, especially of, of our generation uh, of filmmakers, was like, yo, slow-mo diving, you know, which then, you know, took me down the path of, you know, of course, the, the Hong Kong blood operas and all that. And being familiar with, you know, John Woo's work before The Matrix, being like, wow, finally, there's like an American movie that's doing this stuff that I love in these Hong Kong movies. So like, just big action movies and just like, the fun of it, right? Like to, to me, humor is like such a, like I, I love like the Mel Brooks and the, the Naked Gun movies yeah, and like yeah. all those, the Zucker Brothers movies. Like I thought that, sh- that was so the maybe like a Die Hard, thing in the like world. Like a Die Hard would have been like your dream movie, doing something like that. A, a funnier though. Like it's funnier, than, funnier okay. than that. Like, no, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Like okay. definitely funnier. Like because I'm a goofy guy. And at the end of the day, I just, I love, I love film comedy too. So it was like, if you could blend like Hong Kong action movies and humor and also as a visual effects nerd, right? Like I love doing like the Star Wars lightsabers and doing all the cool stuff that you can do with computers because I was a big nerd growing up too. Somewhere in there, somewhere in there <laughs> was kind of the dream. <laughs> well, you know, and having painted that dream, that's not too far off from what you started 
uploading to YouTube and YouTube, I could see where you're thinking would be that would be a good platform for it because an action comedy film, of course, needs some sort of exposition. You need a plot. You need yeah, narrative yeah. movement. But but it could be gags. It could be gags. Yeah, like right? you don't need to have like a you don't need to have like a, a, yeah, a Pulp Fiction style a huge narrative. Story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It could just be like here's a cool. I mean, like right, like here's a, and. Uh, how many movies get summed up by like the best kung fu fights from this movie yeah. and people just sit there on YouTube and watch the fights yeah. only, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like so action has that has that almost purity of like almost like dance, right? Yeah. Almost like choreography. Yeah. Here's just the thing on its own. Here's a self-contained universe. Here's gags within it. But yeah, that honestly, you know, YouTube gave us the freedom to do that. So we really we really took it felt like we took good advantage of that. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Freddie tells me about his first taste of viral success. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency, Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. What was your first big kind of hit on YouTube? So in 2010 is when we started. And at the end of 2010, we did this video called Future First Person Shooter, where we took a GoPro 2 at the time, taped it to the side of my head, and did like this sort of riff, which became this uh, visual motif that shows up throughout our, our work at that time. But like, it was a riff on like what first person shooters looked like, the, the perspective of yeah. the video games. Yeah. But the the novelty of it was, I think it was that it was real, right? And I think that for people who were really into playing video games at that time, you're just like, oh, this is an interesting imagining of like what perhaps in the future when graphics are photorealistic, maybe this is what it looks like. And we were taking little jokes from multiplayer games and stuff like Call of Duty and stuff like that. And we did a little pyrotechnics, a little illegal pyrotechnics on it. And so it had like a visual pop to it, but also just kind of looked different. And also let's, you know, tell a little story. Let's get some jokes and then let's do some stuff that looks looks cool. And that was around Christmas of 2010, I believe. And I remember it went out and then like, because there was just like no content around Christmas, all of these blogs just picked it up. And we just saw like in the morning, everyone opened their presents and then like everyone got bored by about like 12 o'clock. And then like all these video game blogs were like, check it out. Like this is what it looks like in the future. First, And it just sort of went and it went in a way in a speed that we had never seen before. Like, whoa, everyone's covering this. That that I remember really opening my eyes to being like, whoa, how quickly stuff can go and how like quickly stuff can spread. That was like my first experience with it. At this point, do you view that as your career? Yeah. So, I mean, like career is such a weird one because I like, I feel like I, I, I've spent my whole life just kind of like going from things that I think are interesting. And I've been fortunate in that the things I find interesting also have some overlap with my ability to sort of make some money from it and sustain myself in the other ways you need to with life. Does that make me a little basic? Probably. Probably it does. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> you know? Um, but so like at the time, I remember we were, again, here's another fortunate thing. At the time, we, myself the the uh these guys sam and nico like we were all living in this loft in downtown los angeles and it was i think our rent each we paid 200 bucks a month like 200 250 bucks a month and we were all sharing this giant crazy cool former paint factory space there were no walls so we all slept in like one room but just different corners of the same room if it was cold we'd like turn on the oven and like heat our hands up by the oven but we were able to pursue youtube because it was like bro you know, I, I just quit my job. I was working at 20th Century Fox doing video game stuff. And I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. And I was, you know, talking to Brandon. We're like, we could do this for a year and be fine. Like, because our rent is so low. We can just take that risk, right? You know, like, it was good that stuff popped up very early for us comparatively. But, like, we were ready to just be like, yeah, let's just do this for a year and see what happens, you know? When, when your stuff starts popping off in 2010, you're starting to get, like, you know, do yeah. big numbers on videos. Like, we really starting to, like make money like how did that change your circumstances 
A little bit. And when you, when we talk about the eras of YouTube, right, that really started to take off in the second and third years of doing things because at that point, then you start to get like brand attention. There was like companies, video game companies, what have you, that were starting to be like, oh, maybe we can use YouTube as this alternative advertising platform. And they weren't paying as much as like TV commercials, even though anything that we did was getting more exposure for them than a TV yeah, commercial TV, ever would. Yeah. But, but like, again, the context, right? Like nobody... Madison Avenue didn't respect it in that way. So once things start to like really in terms of being like, oh, this is like can be like a real yeah. like money maker for us was when you start to be like, oh, I guess we could do like a little video promoting a game. But there was that window, about two year window where it was like you start to be like brand deals start to show up and then people could start to like, oh, shoot, I can, we can shoot this for this much. And here's how much is coming in. And we almost were like a little mini ad agency. It started to change things because, you know, we're like, oh, OK, we can buy like a nice camera now. Oh, yeah. wait, hey, yeah. we can maybe buy this light or like buy this green screen pop-up thing you know and they're not like crazy expensive stuff but it, it started to be like oh this is allowing us to keep doing what we like doing and also i think we very quickly realized that it was just great practice every week forcing yourself to make something finish it see it through put it up and then next week you're just doing something completely different that process where you're forced to just take something to completion over and over and over again i think is a valuable craft and i think that we realized very quickly we're like this is great because we get to practice visual effects we get practice doing movies we can make mistakes but it's fine because next week we'll do another video you know and it doesn't matter what was what set us apart at that time was that we really took it seriously like i think a lot of people especially once money started rolling in they're like what's the minimum amount of work i can do to get a youtube video up and get views yeah. i don't think we ever had that mindset it was always about trying to do it better and trying to improve our craft as filmmakers we'd shoot it we'd edit it we'd send the edit to sound design where i would do sound design brandon would then do additional vfx i would help on vfx he would do the color of it we'd do a color pass we'd mix it in pro tools do a foot like we were doing it like Jeez. it was a full movie and we're doing one every week so like I fucked my sleep up, but you know, like that was, but that was the, like the Weren't grind sleeping for much us. in the, no, no, we were, bedroom. I mean, like, no, I mean, honestly, at a certain point, like we were, Brand and I were doing like an all nighter every week for like two years. Like that was just the energy of the time, you yeah, know? Yeah. At this era, when you are 25, you're pulling all nighters, you're making money on YouTube, you're in LA again, mid twenties, like having some level of success. How did you manage to keep focused? The, to have the drive to keep to pull all nighters once a week every night for two years rather than just go blow money like and you know I mean I think a big part of it was seeing numbers go up and being like wow more people are seeing this and we're we're reaching more people sort of on a week by week basis which was really just exciting to just note that alone puts a lot of gas in the engine so to speak because it's just fun right and at the end of the day we got to do whatever we want to do every week and, it, and there was a certain creative freedom to that challenge of being like alright what are we going to do this week how are we going to top ourselves and it required a lot of energy it required a lot of effort it required your full life dedication towards it but I think the difference was the end goal was always, I want to make things that people see. Mm. And how they do that, is it in a dark theater that they pay 15 bucks for, or is it on their phone right before classes start in school? To me, that's immaterial. I, I don't care about that as much comparatively, right? Like I know a lot of filmmakers from my generation talk about the cinematic experience. Yeah. And you got to see it on the big screen. And to me, I'm like, listen, if I get that luxury, great. But right now where I'm at, like, yo, if anybody just sees it, I'm happy. Like, I don't care. If, I, I'm not going to put any restrictions on it. I'm already, nobody's, I'm already a nobody. You know what I mean? Like, I can't afford to be like, you can only see my stuff. I'm like, anywhere, anyhow, you can find it, you can see it. Like, I'm happy. I don't care. So to that, to that extent, right, if you said, listen, I'm going to give you a choice. Would you rather have a theatrical release 
that does okay? Or would you rather have like a home video iTunes only streaming only thing, but a lot of more people see it? At the end of the day, like I think that I got into film because I like entertaining people and I like entertaining myself, right? I think I, I find a lot of stuff we do very funny too and I get a kick out of it, right? So if that becomes sort of higher on your list of priorities than other totally valid artistic sensibilities, right? Then I think that sort of shapes your worldview a little bit. I think it might be interesting to answer, the, to tease those out a little bit more. Like like you pick the theatrical release route. Yeah. What do you think then happens to your career, theoretically? So I think that in, I think that in Hollywood and this industry specifically, there's a halo effect of having done things, right? Like only if you've done something in the exact context they're looking at, do they think you can do that thing yeah. in that context. So you're constant. I have felt, at least in my experience, I've always felt like I'm constantly needing to prove myself and prove I can do something again and again and again. And it, what it does for your career, if you get a, a film and it's you know sort of the more traditional theatrical approach, and it allows you those opportunities that are more in that direction of things right and by the way i will note that this is sort of it's we're in a very weird time period because stuff is shifting mm -hmm. but like i would say let's say a few years ago that's the kind of thing that would say like okay cool maybe you could you might be opened up now to a commercial directing gig or like a television episode now you get a couple television directing credits or it makes it easier for like hey i want to raise money in the traditional routes for another theatrical feature film oh you've done it once already and you've here's some numbers for it okay you're a more trustworthy entity you're more likely to get that compared to someone who's like i've never directed a feature film before and i want some money for that so it opens up the doors in that like direction mm -hmm. of the industry, okay. right? And I think what's interesting is that those are different doors. It's not, there's not a lot of overlap because then let's take the other direction. Let's yeah. take a, okay, cool. You made a movie. It became huge on iTunes. Everyone downloaded it on iTunes, incredible numbers on it, did better than like commercial movies that week, like that yeah. sort of thing. A lot of people saw it, what that opens up potentially. Like crowdfunding, for example, in that scenario becomes a little bit easier for you compared to like an indie movie that someone's done that nobody's necessarily seen. I think you're more likely to access a direct to audience thing. And I think it's a much more DIY route in that direction, right? When I'm talking about crowdfunding, I'm talking about that sort of stuff. But again, different doors, different directions. So that in that, re in that release scenario, release it to iTunes, it's successful. It, it's taking you further away from the traditional route, opening you up though to an audience of people who might then... Yeah. You might be able to fund crowdsource funding. You might be able from, to crowdfund, or, and maybe then do a theatrical, and then maybe create a, a film that you could release. Yeah, potentially, yeah, right? Okay. Like, or 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 the other direction where it's like, oh, maybe we just keep doing stuff online only. I know, you know, there's some yeah. some folks I know who are like, yeah, they don't care about theatrical release, but yeah. they 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 aim everything around the iTunes release and how they how they digitally sort of monetize it, right? So like that's where we're at right now. We did this. We started a podcast, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Dungeons and Daddies, which is not a BDSM <laughs> podcast. It's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. And it's like, it's, it's a story where it's like an improv comedy thing. We're like myself and four friends, we play Dungeons and Dragons and we play four dads, like human dads from our world sent into a fantasy world to like rescue their kids. It's like dad humor and all that stuff. You know, we started a Patreon for it. The podcast has been growing over the past couple of years. Matt and myself, my directing partner, we were like, all right, cool. This is our way of funding a movie. We're going to use this. And we're going to fund the movie. So we shot a movie at the end of last year. We're in post-production on it now. And we're going to go like the festival route for it. And like worst case scenario, we got good practice yeah. and we'll do another one. So, you know, look, I think I think it, it, you can you can go in any direction and you yeah. can find your way to it. it what matters is do you want that? Do you want to actually make movies? Because in the course of my career, I found a lot of people and I've met a lot of people who are doing things because it was getting views. They're doing things because it was making them money. And like, I don't know a single one of them who managed to keep it up. 
Mm-hmm. Like they all do it and they love it and they make up, you know, some of them make boatloads of cash doing it. But then at a certain point, they're like, I got to do something else. Yeah. But like for me, I've been, I feel like very fortunate in that I've managed to find the thing I like to do early on. So this sort of ex- exploring of like, oh, let's get into like sort of longer form film. It was because, you know, we were seeing YouTube change and we were like, yeah, I don't think we kind of like, we don't work here as well anymore. We don't have the stamina to keep up that kind of schedule that we were doing anymore. And, you know, we felt like we said a lot in the world of short film. And I wanted to be like, what can I say now in longer form formats? And what are the kind of stories I can tell in longer form stuff? That was from YouTube to like, the web series to doing a couple shows for Hulu and now doing trying to do a movie. It's it's all just sort of the same vein of artistic exploration. So it really just comes down to, I think, if you love filmmaking, you genuinely do love it and you would do it no matter what. It doesn't matter if anyone's watching. It doesn't matter if you can make money off of it. You would take a job and do it on the side. If that's how much you love it, that's, I think, what you need to be asking yourself. Because if it's not that, fine. I think you have to find something that it is that way for you. Hey, stick around because after the break, Started From the Bottom producer David Ja joins me on mic as we ask Freddie about the obstacles he faced in Hollywood as an Asian creator. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency, Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. David, I know you're a fan of Freddie. Anything you want to ask? You know, Freddie, I will say when I was growing up, YouTube did seem like a way for Asian filmmakers to sort of circumvent the institution of Hollywood. It was. And it was a breath of fresh air to see a a yellow face out there. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on being an Asian creator. So here's the way... Here's the way I feel about that, which is when I think about myself as an American, when I think of myself as as a human being, I don't ever want to feel like I'm constrained by anything. So for me, and there's Asian stories that I want to tell, but I feel like I don't want to be someone to be like, and they only tell Asian mm-hmm. stories, right? I feel like that is in and of itself its own cage that you get segmented into and can be discarded and ignored, right? I would much rather be someone who'd be like, who, who has the freedom that is implicit to white filmmakers, which is you can make something and cover any subject. So in that sense, I think that when I look at like, you know, sort of the generations to come, I think the message that I would want to send is like not one of like stick to the world that you know and only say that. It's like, no, no, no. I think art is about exploring and empathizing with other viewpoints. And maybe I'll overreach. Maybe I'll try and tell a story that I'm like, ooh, didn't get all the nuance on that. That's the risk of art. And I think that I just look around and I see so few especially because, you know, there's the stereotype with with sort of Asian parenting and growing up. I see so few artistic Asian types. And that bums me out because like... It's devastating. It's devastating. It's a threat to us. So, So what do you make of this recent trend then where Asian actors, Asian movie makers, Asian media is sort of being pushed towards this pigeonhole where we have to be Asian. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Like, that's our thing now. Like, that's our genre now. I was literally joking. I was literally joking the other day where I'm like, I can't wait until we get past this era of movies where our parents apologize to us. That's, like, the plot point. Like The, the tropes, man. It's, it's so bad. It, it's out of control. You know, a lot of Asian Americans don't like Asian American content. Yeah, and so so to me at least, to me at least, what's interesting about it is like there's kind of two factors at play there, right? There's there is a palatability towards a predominantly white dominated quote unquote mainstream culture, right? What YouTube and online has opened up is that there are niche cultures that are huge, right? Like K-pop is exploded because of online video, right? So the question of mainstream palatability to me 
the only answer to when someone tries to pigeonhole you is you must resist it as hard as you can. You must go as hard as you can in the opposite direction in order to not be pigeonholed. I think that the obligation is not to be like, what is the most commercially viable thing that I can fit in to the white media landscape that will get us the sort of accolades? Nah, fuck that. That's why, That's why. honestly, that's why I think about um, Better Luck Tomorrow so much, Justin Lin's film that you know he started his career off with, which depicted these very studious group of Asians doing crimes. You know, a very famous example in the film history where he played that at a festival, I think it was Sundance, and like a critic stood up and I was like, you're depicting Asians in this like negative light. Like, how can you do this as an Asian filmmaker? And Roger Ebert stood up and was like, no, man, he should be able to say that. Why not? Hell yeah, yeah. we do crimes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the kind of stuff where I want, I want to be like, listen, uh, this stuff is Brilliant. out there. How we respond to it is within our control, you know? And I think that, like, it's always going to be commercially viable to hue with white culture. If there's gravity, the gravity is going to pull you towards what's the mainstream pop culture accessibility, right? It's, and I think it's up to yeah. us as if you're yeah. a true artist. It's up to you to, like, fire the booster rockets and be like, nah, hell no, we're going over here. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Freddie. Over 9 million subscribers, 1.6 billion views, man. By any measure of success, like you're a successful filmmaker. Like I feel like in another era, there's a world where you should be Kevin Smith, Robert Rodriguez, if you wanted to be, right? Like if you wanted to have that, you 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 should be Quentin Tarantino if you wanted to have that, right? Uh, maybe, I hope. I mean, <laughs> look, I mean, have get, been given the same opportunities, at least, that these people were given, right? But like... It feels like the given the level of audience you've been able to build, the level of success you've been able to have as a filmmaker, like you should be given the opportunities that a lot of like indie filmmakers have been given over the years. Like, is there? Do you feel like the predominant view of Asian involvement in cinema has been a factor in that, or? I mean, I think there's always things in life that are some parts are in your hands, some parts are out of your hands, right? Like, there's certain things that's just like I can't control what the taste is and like, hey, you know what? Here's the book that was the Asian book that got popular. And then, you know, right? Like that, I, a lot of the stuff in, in life, I think is out of your hands. And then of the stuff in my hands, I think I've always tried to, to stay cl as close to my sort of artistic principles, guiding principles as possible. Those are the choices that you make. And for me, I think that, you know, there certainly must be some, I think there's, of course, externalizing factors that, that have influenced the, the path that I took. It's kind of bullshit. Like, Kevin Smith can make a career out of clerks. Like, why can't... <laughs> See, it might be, but like, I'm happy though. I'm, I'm happy, happy doing what well. I, I, But like, I, I, you I, be able to make a, some sort of a commercial career out of, uh, in film, out of Rocket Jump? Even you said earlier, like, you keep having to prove yourself, like, like it's not good enough. But see, I love that. But I love that. You like that. I love being in a position where I feel like I have to prove myself. I f but that's the thing. I love that. I don't know why I'm addicted to it. Because I think that, like, I think that that place is is where it's like that's where it's all on the line I, and to me it's like the, it's your choice right you can either be like dang the system's unfair or maybe this is an asian thing i grew up year of the ox everyone says you're the ox they just put their head down and work that's like that's how i feel i just put my head down like all right listen the world is is not rewarding me in the way whatever i don't care i'm just gonna keep working on my stuff because i love doing this the way i feel is like as long as i can at least sustain my career at least i can kind of like pay for my rent and like you know pay for my food i'm gonna keep going kind of the direction the direction that i go you know, it's funny. I feel like that's, I feel like that's the primary way people of color become successful is just learning to put your head down and work. Because when you lift your head up, and you start to realize oh, the like, reality. Yo, of this it. is it's a little it's depressing. It's a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's so sad. We got to just put our head down and ignore it. Shit, man. Freddie Juan, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Freddie Wong, one of the OG stars of YouTube and early influencers. Obviously, his career in media has taken some twists and turns, but it's incredible what he's managed to accomplish, all from a YouTube channel that he started in 2006 called Freddie W. Started from the Bottom is produced by David Ja, edited by Keisha Williams, engineered by Ben Tolliday, booked by Laura Morgan, with production help from Leah Rose. The show's executive produced by Jacob Goldstein, who's not all up in the videos for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Ben Tolliday and David Ja, featuring Anthony Ags and Savannah Joe Lack. Listen to Start Up From The Bottom wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want ad-free episodes available one week early, sign up for Pushkin Plus. Check out pushkin.fm or the Apple Show page for more information. If you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. I'm Justin Richmond. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn. Alliances will shift and danger lies around every corner leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.